for business. Welcome to the Parenting with Confidence podcast. I am your host, Teresa Alexander-Edman, board-certified behavior analyst and infant toddler developmental specialist. So please, please, please welcome Ms. Tanya Ellis. Yay, Tanya. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm excited to be here. You are most welcome, ma'am. I'm excited to have you. And I'm going to tell the people a little bit about you, and then we'll just dive right in and you can school us. <laughs> okay. All right. So Tanya is a Houston-based children's book author. She has self-published and sold over 150,000 books in her Sophie Washington Illustrated chapter series for kids ages 8 to 12. She is a new agented and announced Sorry, let me just say that again. She is now agented. Sorry, I need to, you know, <laughs> and announce a picture book deal with Harper Collins. Congratulations. Thank you. You're welcome. The book, which focuses on Juneteenth, release, releases in 2024. Um, she also speaks on book marketing and publishing and diversity in children's literature. So, welcome. Thank you for being here, Miss Tanya. Yeah, thank you so much. This is going to be fun. You are most welcome, ma'am. So just take us on your journey to your first book. Like, why did you, what sparked your author gene? <laughs> okay. Well, I um, was a journalist years ago. So from the time I was young, I loved books, reading and writing. And I always knew that I wanted to be a writer and I worked as a newspaper reporter for a while. And then I'm a mom of three. So when I had my three kids, I was home with them for a while and I wrote freelance for some family magazines in the Houston area where I live. So I was fortunate to be able to do some work while I was home with my kids. And I used to read with them all the time and I would share some of my childhood favorites with them. And I noticed, especially I have a daughter and two sons, especially my sons weren't really interested in a lot of the books I was reading because none of the characters really were relatable to them. There weren't many that none of them looked like them mm -hmm. and it, they just weren't interested. And I was saying, you know, I could write a book that might be a fun book that they would like. And I've lived in Houston for 19 years. I'm originally from Louisville, Kentucky. So a lot of the different things I would see in the community were very unique and interesting. For example, in my neighborhood in Houston, I've seen an eight foot alligator coming out of some of the waterways. Yeah, they have alligators, we have wild boar, there's the rodeo here, there's all kinds of really interesting things. And I said, I could write a fun book that would hold the kids' attention. And, and our community also is one of the most diverse in the United States. And so it, I wanted something that would show the different cultures and a lot of the different things going on in the community that would encourage my own kids to read. And so that's how I wrote my first book in the series. And then I shared it with their school librarian because I kind of just wrote it just as a fun thing. I would actually share it with my kids as bedtime stories as I was writing it because we used to read every evening and they would be like, well, add more here, get some more action. So they really got into it. And when I finished the book, the librarian said, I feel like you really have something here because this is an African-American family 
that isn't like a trauma story or, you know, them going through a lot of hard times. It's kind of showing daily family life and it's a little unique. So she encouraged me and helped me have school visits at the school. And I started participating in other community events in Houston. And then it kind of, the series just caught on. And I kept writing the books and teachers and librarians would come to different events. And Houston's the fourth largest city in the country. So I was able to get a lot of different people reading the books and, you know, getting it growing. And it just continued from there. Wow, that's an amazing story. It's a beautiful story, but part of that saddens me, Tanya, because, you know, the fact that it was unique in that the family had, you know, African-American families without trauma and drama and all the rest of it, just a beautiful feel good story. It's pretty sad that, you know, that's the um, exception and not the rule. Yeah. And it, what really saddens me, Teresa, is that one of the, one of my youngest son's friends from school, her teacher gave her, she was an advanced reader. And so she was a little black girl. So the teacher gave her a copy of Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry when she was in about third grade. And the child was traumatized because it's filled with, and it's one of my favorite books. It's by Mildred D. Taylor. It's about a sharecropping family. And I read that as a child, but the little girl was a suburban girl from Houston. It's filled with the N word. Like after I reread it as an adult, I didn't notice it back then, but a lot of the things were very tough topics for a young child, but because it had a little black girl on the cover, that's what her teacher gave her. And those were the options, a lot of the options. Now in recent years, there's been a lot more um, diverse books that you're seeing coming out. A lot of them are being banned, but there's a lot more diverse books showing just everyday life with multicultural characters. So we're seeing that, and it's sadly a lot of them are being banned. But um, especially back in the, you know, when I was coming up, there was nothing there were no kids. And I, when I look back, I can't believe, you know, even Little House on the Prairie and some of these books, I loved a lot of the racist things that are in those books that I didn't even pick up on as a child. So it's, it's really interesting. It is. It is. And like you said, some of those themes to us, they just seem, you know, we brush them off because, you know, it's Little House on the Prairie, you know, like, Right. Especially towards the Native Americans and things like that. I thought of them as kind of evil characters based on what I saw growing up. That was how they were portrayed in the media. So true. So true. They were always the bad guys coming to get you. And if we were to go back in, in history and look at what, you know, how disenfranchised they were, we'd understand why they, yeah, maybe, you know, like just to get, to get a picture of what life was like for them would be very um, humbling. And I think just really show the, um, just the trauma they went through as well. And there's actually a modern day book called Prairie Lotus, I believe by an author named Linda Sue Park mm -hmm. that shows it's, it has a style of Little House in the Prairie, but it's an Asian character during those time periods. And it shows what the Native Americans were really going through. It kind of has a feel for, it's like Little House on the Prairie, but it's rewritten and it's showing how things were for the Native Americans and the way things were for minorities during those times. That and is wonderful. Sorry. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, sorry, I'm never drinking that. Yeah, that was my fault. Forgive me. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's really important though for because so many of us, you know, as African Americans, Black people, however, we don't know our history because it's been colored. <laughs> You know, and uh, so it's really important. And then also too, you know, like everybody says, representation matters. We need to see our children need to see them themselves in books. We need to see, we need the stories to come out. We need to, you know, just have people understand what, you know, us to understand what our ancestors went through. And then for everybody else to see, oh man, you know, life hasn't been wonderful. Not that that's an excuse, but it's just nice to know history. Right. And there's actually a psychologist named Rudine Sims Bishop, who says that books should be mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. And diverse books are important for all people, you know, all races, because they're mirrors, because they let the child see themselves. Mm -hmm. And then they're windows opening up those worlds to other people so they can understand different people. And sliding glass doors, because they let people into different worlds. So this helps the children and all of us have more understanding of each other, cultural differences, why people behave the way they do. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's so important to have multicultural books. It is. And I would even um, extend that to, you know, children with varying abilities, you know, having yes. books for basically all people, because all people should be represented where, you know, people are facing, you know, somebody said we're more alike than different. And I think having those books will help us see our similarities as opposed to the differences that polarize us. Exactly. And even when you talk about disabilities, I was talking to my daughter um, the other day when I was growing up, a lot of disabilities or different conditions people had, we didn't know, you know, there were no names for them. You just thought little Johnny's just a little different, a little odd or whatever. Mm. But if we had known some of these things, if you had a book that may talk about a different disability, you might have more empathy and understanding for another person. So true. And, you know, I've told this story so many times because I remember once I was working with a young lady, she was 32 years old and we were at a, um, we walked into a Burger King and because that's what she wanted to eat for lunch that day. And we were working on her requesting using pictures. And of course she was not vocal. So sometimes, you know, when she got agitated, she would just make noises. And I remember a couple, an, elder, an older couple walked in and the woman was like, don't let her touch you, you know, to her husband. I thought, okay, it's not contagious, first of all. And she's not trying to hurt anybody. She is just somebody who does not, know, she's not able to communicate. And then I thought, man, if we were educated on differences, uh, like, you know, from the beginning, then we would be more empathetic. We would understand, okay, this person has feelings and thoughts. They're just not able to express themselves the way, you know, we can. And my thing is, but for the grace of God, you know, it could have been one of us. Exactly. And that reminds me, there's another children's book called Out of My Mind by Sharon Draper. And it's about a child who, um, can't communicate and she's in a wheelchair, but actually mentally she's a genius, but people can't see that because they, she can't speak, right. you know, it's a fictional book, but reading books like that help children and adults just have more understanding or for different conditions, knowledge about different things. 
and can help make things better for all of us. Absolutely. And you say it's a fictional book, but then I think Stephen Hawking, right? Okay. <laughs> right, right. You know, he was in a wheelchair and didn't, you know, wasn't able to talk, but yet still the man was a genius. Right. So, exactly. Yeah, it happens. It's just, you know, again, some people are just trapped in their heads because they don't have a way to communicate. And if we can help give them a voice, then, you know, that would help them feel human and, you know, that and seen. Right. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. It's so important. Yeah. It is. It really is. Now, take us into one of your stories. Okay. Well, my books are about my Sophie Washington series is a 13 book chapter book series about a girl from Houston who's 11 years old and her diverse group of friends. So each book has her learning different lessons like standing up to bullies fitting in with her friends, uh, getting along with her little brother. So they're kind of like an um, old sitcom episode in each book where they're learning different lessons and then growing from each little problem that they face and they kind of wrap up in a tidy bow at the end. So they're 100 page illustrated chapter books geared to kids ages 8 to 12. And around kids in... Um, second to fourth and fifth grade are my primary readers. Awesome. That is so beautiful. And I think that age is so important to grasp, you know, so to help them, first of all, they get to visualize these amazing stories, right? With the help of the illustrations. Uh, Cause I know for me, when I was younger, reading was just for me, a joy is it was my escape is how yeah. I traveled the world. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And, um, yeah. So I think that is beautiful. And then to see the different characters. You know, yeah. I've been happy. The kids have really related to the books and I've had a few kids will dress up as Sophie and sent me pictures. So that's been nice to see that they've, and it's gotten a lot of reluctant readers to read because I'll get letters from parents saying their kids who didn't like reading have gone on to read all the books in the series. So that's been nice. Oh, that is beautiful. And we know how important reading is. Yes, very important. And I actually, in preparation for this interview, was looking at some statistics and it was showing that, um, you know, reading helps kids in all aspects of the education. And sadly, some communities build prisons based on reading scores. In areas where they have low reading scores, they use that to project how many prisons they need to build. Yeah, so you know, when they, sorry. Yeah, I, I keep talking over you, I'm so sorry, Daddy. I talk, I talk a lot, so yeah. <laughs> But you know, the, the saddest part to that, do you know what grade they look at those, what scores they look at? Was it, I think it was like elementary school. Is it third grade? You're third grade, ma'am. Oh, third grade. So, so they've written children off at third grade. Oh, that makes me want to cry just hearing that. Yes. So instead of building more schools or making the education system better, they build prisons because they're like, well, it's not going to get any better. So we'll just throw our hands up and build prisons. That's awful. Yeah, that it just really encourages me to keep writing and keep trying to um, make things relatable and engaging for our kids because it's so important, even with their future, um, you know, even if they don't go to prison and go on through, the studies show that people have higher education 
levels. They have higher income levels when they're readers, you know, so this impacts their whole lives. It certainly does. It does. And, you know, one of the saddest things for me, because I've worked in juvenile justice and we'd have so many young men come in. Most of the programs I worked, I worked in one female program and the rest were men, were um, young men. And um, to have them come in at, you know, 15, 16, 17 and up, they could be there up until 18. And we'd get so excited when we had somebody who read at a fifth grade level. Yeah, because most of them sadly read below third grade the testing that came out they read below third grade so they really supported this you know that whole concept of okay the third grade testing however again I would just I don't know there's got to be we got to do something to talk to the powers that be instead of building prisons make schools better and you know there were there's um there's studies that came out in schools that were opened based on certain um, teaching methodologies that were successful. And guess what? They don't exist today. <laughs> we wonder who got rid of them or when, when they got rid of those. Yeah. 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 Millions of dollars were put into that. Millions. And they were like, oh, yes, this method, I think, was precision teaching. And there were two that were high up on the precision teaching was one of them. And they were successful. But I want to encourage parents as well, because, um, you know, a lot of this can be done at home. And I've read that just five minutes a day of reading can help kids make significant gains in their fluency, vocabulary, and just their reading level. So even if you can take five minutes to listen to your child read, that can make a big difference. It certainly does. And I would say start, you know, my mom encouraged me to start reading when I was pregnant with my babies. Right. You know, and then carry that on when they were born, we read to them and they went into, you know, in kindergarten, my kids were, you know, had started reading and by grade one, they were fluent. Like my younger son, he was, he was reading at a fourth grade level in grade one, you know, coming home with chapter books and all of that. So it, you know, the studies, the real life does bear out all these studies where, like you said, reading it, and it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to, because once you teach them, they'll be reading to you. You don't have to keep reading to them. If you do the hard work in the beginning, then they will take over and they'll do the work. Right. And I know parents are busy, you know, and we have so many responsibilities, but even if you have that bedtime with your child, just read to them every night, make a routine, then that's going to help even with their vocabulary and make them associate reading with fun and a comforting time and something positive, not just something that's done only at school. Exactly. Exactly. And if we start before they get into school, school will be so much easier for them. Yes. Yes. Because it's really with all the distractions and the electronics now that it, it really saddens me to see this. So I'm just trying to beat that drum and, and encourage parents too, because I know how hard it is for them. Raising kids in this age is is way more difficult, I know, than when I came up with all the video games and all these other things. Social media, I there's studies showing that our teens and young adults are not reading near what they did in the past because they're scrolling on their phones. Yes, and that actually affects the structure of their brains. 
and not in a good way. Right. And even your attention span, being yeah. able to focus. Yeah. yeah, so true. So true. And, you know, I understand why parents allow their children to be on these devices, but it doesn't have to be. So, I mean, they can go outside and make mud pies and do things and, you know, um, or just, you know, be in the living room, give them some cardboard. And it's amazing what children will come up with, <laughs> you know, right? so creative. Yeah, just crafts, activities, or like you said, get some leaves, some glue and put them on the porch, let them stick it on there or anything. Yeah, yeah. You'd be amazed at what they create. Like there's a friend of mine, um, he, the, the young man, their son, when the cereal, you know, they'll give him the cereal boxes or any, you know, packaging boxes and he makes forts. He does all, I mean, he is so creative oh, yeah. with that. And he doesn't ask to watch TV. But the funny thing is when he does, it's all about numbers and dinosaurs. I mean, he taught me so much about numbers and dinosaurs at three years old. He was teaching me about numbers and dinosaurs, but he could also read fluently at three and just amazing. And the, and the words that he could not read, he actually could decode them. That's wonderful. Yeah, like truly brilliant. But they didn't do a lot. I mean, he does not have an iPad. He does not have a cell phone. I mean, he's seven now and he's never had real access to any of those things. You know, they just, you know, here, because again, for families who don't have a backyard or a porch in the house, they just give them these cardboard boxes and he just creates whatever with them. And it's, you'd just be amazed at how brilliant. I mean, I, I, I see him as an engineer because of the things that he comes up with. Right. Well, that's wonderful to hear. And I know I can imagine that how much easier it is to give a child the iPad or your tablet, but in the front end, it may be easier. But then in the back end, when you're having difficulties with them not being able to focus and falling behind in school, because think with your son reading chapter books at first grade, think of the ones who don't even know their alphabet. There's no way they're going to catch up to him. He's going to, you know, so setting that stage early on and getting those foundational educational things taken care of is so important. It is. It is. And I work in the school district, so I see it every day. These babies who don't know their numbers and their letters. And a lot of parents were like, well, their teachers are failing them. And again, parents, it has to start at home. I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just letting you know if we don't, because the school does not have the capacity to teach what they would like to and need to teach. They don't have the bodies. They don't have the, they just don't have it. So it has to start at home. We have to give our children that boost up so that they can then flourish when they're in school with 20 other children, at least like I walked into a school yesterday and this is a classroom with children with autism. There were 26 oh. students in that class. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. So, But it does start at home. And I don't want to blame parents, but I know, and I was able to be with my children because I was working from home and I could work with them. And I know it's hard, but like you said, when my kids went to school, they were reading chapter books in kindergarten. So and I have a friend who taught kindergarten and the kids didn't even know their own name coming in. So how are they going to compete? So you can't just blame the schools. We've got to take that time with our babies. Take, even if it's five minutes, that's going to make a difference. You know, sitting down and reading with your child will make a difference. So I just urge parents to do that. We can't 
sit and blame the schools and blame the community because some of them don't care. It's the way I feel, you know. So we've got to um, do this for our children. Yes, we do. Because, you know, too, they are our future. And right. if we don't prepare them for the future, our future will be really sad. Yes. Yeah, so will theirs. Right. So I just encourage parents to try to take that time with your children to help set them up for success. Absolutely. And like you said, Miss Tanya, it doesn't take much, you know, five minutes a day. Um, you know, I interviewed Dr. Danny Brassell and he said, even listening to an audiobook helps, you know, have oh, okay. to listen to audiobooks. That's helpful instead of, you know, it's not a screen because when you, you're in the car listening to an audiobook, you can talk to them about the stories. You can ask them questions and make it something instead of everybody being on their device while you're driving, right. you know, listen to a book. Right. And I actually would have, and see, we didn't have all the devices when my kids were smaller, but we had, I had books in the car. I would quiz them on there because in Houston, every where I live, it's like a 30 minute commute everywhere you go. Mm. We would work on spelling words and different things while we were in the car. So you could fit in, you know, doing some of this stuff while you're in the car. You could even have them read to you. Yes. While you're driving. Absolutely. Yeah. I did the same thing with my kids. My older son would read all the street signs at a time. Okay. We're looking out for this street. So what's this one coming up? And, you know, he'd read the street signs, the younger one, he had a list in the back seat, you know, reading his um, sight words and, you know, simple math problems, because again, you have to make use of that time. Yes. Yeah. Instead of them on a phone and I didn't let my kids, my kids had phones when they were like 12 or 13. So they were way old compared because I've done, I do school visits and I was surprised, you know, a lot of them are seven, eight with phones, but I feel like that's going to hold, it's holding these kids back doing this. It's such a young age. Yeah, it yeah. certainly is. You know, and another thing you can do while driving is, you know, look at the scenery, you know, talk about what they're seeing, help them become observant, help, you know, it helps with their focus and, you know, just being able to attend to something other than that passive screen. Right, right. So it's, it's a challenge. It's a lot. It is, it is. But I think though, it's not as difficult, like you said, because I'm glad you brought up the time in the vehicle. I'm glad you brought that up because that's time that could be used instead of parents saying, I don't have time. I don't have time. Make use of the time in the car. Right. Or even when we would have, if I had to wait for another child in an activity, then I could work with the other one on homework or whatever they were doing. So I tried to use those pockets time. And again, I didn't have a lot of the electronics anyway, because I can understand. I know when video games came out, one of my my middle child is very, he was very active, kind of difficult to deal with. And he'd play those games and I'd look up and hours had gone by. I'm like, oh my goodness. But it was easy. You know, he was occupied. I knew where he was. So I can definitely understand why we're doing this, but we've got to think about the long-term implications and looking out for that future success for our children. Absolutely. You know, right now I'm battling. Um, I have a client. The son is 15 years old. So we're working with him and he is addicted to the computer. 
I so, know. Yes. Yeah. It's so sad. Especially with the boys, because I'm telling you, with my sons, I threw one of their game systems in the trash one time because <laughs> I was so frustrated. It's so difficult. And then even if you get the, um, there were different things that could, you could use to turn them off and disable. Mm -hmm. They figure it out before me. They would undo, you know, I know it's so hard for parents nowadays. So it's best if you can kind of hook them on books or get them into that young because those games are just plain addictive. That's all yeah. I can say. Yeah, they are. And honestly, the only reason I'm working with them is because he's addicted to this computer and yes. mom has actually told him, OK, so she has zero computers. She took the, the school computer back. They're like, we don't want it. She's like, I don't care. You need to keep it because this is causing a problem in my home. I mean, he's punching holes in the walls and doing all this. Oh. So she went cold turkey. And for three weeks, we could see him progressively getting better because he had no computer. Right. And he went outside and made friends and play, you know, playing sports and doing all these different things. He's finding ways to entertain himself. Now- mm -hmm. It's interesting because he snuck the computer home last week and his behavior immediately went south. So, right. and then they're angry and it, it really changes their personalities. Yes, it does. It really does. You know, I had somebody on doing, um, talking about detoxing and she said when she detoxed her kids, they, after, you know, while her daughter came to her thanking her because she was happier, because like you said, they are angry there. It, it, programs them it literally programs their brains in ways that are not serving them right and actually one of my books is uh sophie washington the gamer and her little brother cole is in most of the books and he loves video games and it focuses on setting limits he has to give up playing games for 40 days for lent during easter time and he's sneaking and playing and doing that but also i've seen studies showing with um Social media and teen girls, you know, it's leading to anxiety and depression. There's a huge uptick in suicide in the African-American community with teens, and they're linking it to gaming and social media. Wow. So this is really, and I see my daughter is a young adult now, but listening to her and her friends, a lot of the issues, some of the things they're talking about are stemming from them being on social media. They stay up late at night, you know, they're not sleeping and all of this is impacting their mentality and feelings, you know, and emotional states and mental states. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and then, you know, like the cyber bullying, all of that is just, so, I mean, it, we can go down so many rabbit holes and none of them are, are beautiful. You know, it's just so sad. Yeah. Put the phones down and pick up a book, get the Sophie yeah. Washington series, put all Throw out all the iPad. Well, the sad part is you need my kids, even in school, they had to use their computers and things for mm -hmm. their work. A lot of their books, some of them are online now. So we've got to learn how to manage this somehow. Yes. Yes. Set some limits. Like you said earlier, set some limits because yeah. everything has limits, right? When we go to work, we have to focus and get the work done. You know, even if you work for yourself, you still have to put these things down if you want to be successful. So it's really important. And, you know, if you have a relationship, you can't just be sitting on a device. You know, right. there's so many things that are negatively impacted by these devices. 
Right. And actually, the people who created the devices did not let them their children use them. In Silicon Valley, the people who created these things, they didn't let their kids use them. So that ought to tell us something. Exactly. And somebody said that to me recently. And I was like, mm -hmm. what? Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's really telling. Yes. Yes. Wow. You know, it's almost scary hearing that because it's like, what are, so what is so horrible about what you've created that you don't want your own children to partake? Right. So they had to have known. And they actually, I met someone who worked in advertising when I had to do a talk in New York for my book. And he was saying they do things to make these games and things addictive or to, they want people, even on the social media sites and things, they want you to stay on. So yeah. they do things with the algorithms and all that to keep us on these sites as long as possible. Yes. And there's a show. Uh, it's on Netflix. I, I think it's called the social experiment, social something, but it's on wow. Netflix talking about these algorithms that have literally gotten away from the creators because it just of the way that it just keeps going and how it is addicting and all the, you know, all the woes that come along with it. Okay. Yeah. I've heard of that. I need to, I've been kind of scared to watch that because I use social media a lot with my business, but I do know you know, you really have to be cognizant of this and set limits for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And when we, when our children see us set limits for ourselves, they might set limits for themselves realizing, oh, you know, because we have to model the behaviors we want our children to imitate. So. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Well, Miss Tanya, if there's one thing you want our listeners to leave here with, what would that be? I uh, just want to encourage them as parents to set these limits and work with your children, set aside not even five minutes a day with reading can make a huge difference. So just be encouraged, even when it seems difficult, these small daily things that you're doing consistently are, are making a difference because parenting is hard, but um, taking that time can help set your child up for success. It certainly can. And thank you so much, ma'am. Parents, you've been given some wonderful tips so you can go out there and parent with confidence. Yes. Yeah.